Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. And my next guest joins us in the studio. Joe Lloyd is a choreographer and dancer, and once upon a time was a regular guest on this show in a, 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 a fortnightly dance segment with Gerard Van Dyke. That segment's kind of on hiatus at the moment, but who knows what will happen in future. But Joe is here to talk to us about her participation in the Kia Choreographic Award, the semi-finals of which are happening here in Melbourne at Dance House from the 3rd to the 7th of March. Joe, lovely to have you back. Oh, it's very good to be back, Richard. So, in terms of the Kia Choreographic Award, it's um, it's a high-profile award celebrating contemporary dance practice. Uh, uh, it's an interesting approach to, I guess, raising the profile of contemporary dance, not just within amongst dance aficionados who already know and love the form, but by encouraging the mainstream media to write about it because the media love to the hook or the angle of a prize. Yeah, I think immediately um, when it came around in uh, 2014, because this is the fourth version every two years it comes around, I remember there was a lot of attention because it's the first of its kind, the only one of its kind here. And I think um, it has this sort of paradoxical nature because basically you're working as you normally would to make a work and you're supported but there's this lurking end result that you're aiming for that is very different to what you would normally be aiming for and you know that um, you're going to be in a context with other works that you'll never really have any gauge on but eventually you're going to be alongside of them and there's this uh, comparison to be made and there's five people on a jury telling you whether the work's up to scratch or not, whether it's worth the money or not. So as a choreographer, how does it feel to be competing against your peers and colleagues for a $50,000 prize? I think most of the time I honestly forget. And really there's pressure, but the pressure is not uh, so much due to, you know, the context of this competition, but the amount of time I have and the framework. So these parameters that we're given are very firm and fixed and, of course, they need to be um, for a competition of this type. So, you know, we're all given the same amount of time to work. We're all given the parameters of it has to be a 12 to 20-minute work. It has to be in this theatrical space with these theatrical devices in terms of lighting. Um, we all get the same lighting designer, but our other collaborators are our choice. Um, but pretty much from your first proposition um, to apply to be one of the uh, uh, commissioned artists, that's that's what you have to adhere to. So the title, what I proposed. So if I've, I, I proposed to um, use two creatives, my designer, Andrew Trelaw, and um, composer, um, Dwayne Morrison. So I proposed the three of us would be making and performing the work. So if I decide, you know, a week or a day before the opening night that I don't want them in the work or if I would like to involve you in the work, say, Richard, that's not 
permissible. Which is a really interesting way to create a work because instead of the malleable, flexible kind of uh, performance mode that you would normally work in, in which you might do a series of developments, decide what's working, what's not, and over time the idea morphs completely exactly. or at least significantly from its original conception. Here you, you are, as you said, you're locked into a framework uh, and I mean, on one level, fantastic. You've been given effectively the seeding funding to commission and create a new work. Absolutely. But you're working within a really kind of artificial kind of structure or boundary. Yeah, and it's then up to the individual to uh, work out how they're going to either push up against that, ignore that, or utilise that to their benefit. And I think for me... um, uh, it's almost like the speed at which I have to make creative choices has compressed. So it's like a stock cube and it's it's that thing of I can't really second guess. I've got to just work out what it isn't to work out what it is and then just keep going right until the end, like keep making until the end, but uh, not clamp down. I think parameters like this can make you clamp down creatively and I just don't work well like that so I'm, I'm just trying to hover above myself and look at how I'm making but it's a stamina there's some you know and it's, it's that thing if you have a certain amount of hours that you work in the studio but you know at 4am and you're thinking about it that might be where you have the gold moment where you're like that's what it is and that's not that's not part of the 100 hours do you know what I mean? I'm consumed by it. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Now, on, on the one level, I'm thinking that although this is a, a challenging and a, and a different way to work, difference is not necessarily a bad thing. Instead of uh, a more kind of amorphous creative process that kind of flows over over two years, for example, and as we said, may completely kind of may bear no resemblance to your starting point. Being given these kind of parameters and frameworks and making within them is in itself a unique creative challenge. Yeah, and I'm I'm really interested in different um, circumstances for making. Like I've done those 24-hour projects. Um, you know, the last few works I've done have been two-hour durational performances that have structures that can be malleable in performance so this idea of how you prepare for performance really interests me and with this one it's like I'm trying in some ways to make those two hour durational works but in 20 minutes similar to someone making a short film but usually makes you know features you can't really achieve the same thing as easily but so it, it means I've got to find new ways I can't kind of go to my usual solutions to fix things that I think are problematic which I think is this stamina and I am enjoying it and I'm I'm lucky because I've got my two collaborators that I'm working with that we've worked with a lot together but the other day Andrew just was we were looking at some of the design elements and he just went it's not that piece we've done like this it's so it's so this piece is sort of got its own will I think they all have their own will and it's kind of telling me what it can't be and then I've got to find out what I can put in <laughs> beyond the concept of working with Andrew and Dwayne as you've said what kind of themes and ideas and uh, and even kind of physical motifs did you want to explore within uh, the piece that you're creating for the Kia Choreographic Award, which is called That's Her Name? Uh, yeah, I think, of course, I'm trying to uh, augment physicality. So I'm really interested in the body as this inscriptive surface and what um, movement can uh, reference or represent and how I can augment that and sort of uh, destabilise or decategorize um and i think with this one with Dwayne and andrew they play a role in being her as much as you know potentially i'm her um so i'm looking at that sort of identity in there but um 
I don't know, it keeps morphing. And I think I work a lot with words and text and um, this sort of a aspect of this one that's seeded in some of the words that I found. Uh, yeah, but I'm, I guess at the moment I'm interested in sort of non-patterns becoming patterns and erosion and so they're my ongoing themes it's kind of also that that this is another opportunity to keep developing what I have an interest in um, in no matter what situation I'm in which I think is probably probably what we'll see with the other artists and it's sort of that thing my dad always says hold your course like so I think what is my course what am I trying to hold so um, it is just another time to be working on my practice and I guess my favourite thing is when I find it find something that feels like a new vocabulary physically for me and I think I've found a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, I'm, one of the things that intrigues me about the Kia is just the, the diverse array of makers, choreographers, performers and ideas being explored. I mean, just in given there's two programs uh, across the, the semifinals and you're in program one alongside the uh, Gold Coast company The Farm with a piece called Hold Me Closer, Tony Danza. Um, and The Farm make kind of physical theatre work, they've explored masculinity, they've used humour um, so they have the, their own kind of unique kind of style of work. Then you've got uh, Rihanna Head uh, to uh, Saint, I think is the surname uh, and creating a work with three visibly disabled dancers uh, and then Angela Go is creating a work, Sky Blue kind of uh, mythic, so kind of four different choreographic ideas being explored and from an audience perspective the opportunity to, to instead of just seeing one hour long work or something like that, to see four quite different styles, vocabularies, ideas being explored on stage across the evening is a pretty exciting snapshot of what can be achieved with the, the form of contemporary dance. Yeah, indeed, and it's kind of Moorish. Like on the on the Saturday you can see Program 1 at 2 o'clock, go have a drink and come back and see the evening one. And I think that's often a popular thing to do because you just keep wanting to go, what's the next one, what's the next one? Um, and... You know, the eight of us, there's two of us based in Melbourne and the rest are from other states. And I think that's also pretty special that it's not um, Melbourne-centric. It's it's a chance to see a whole range. And also the fact that the judges who are who will be choosing uh, the kind of from the semi-finals, choosing the four finalists uh, who then perform at Carriage Works in Sydney uh, from the 12th to the 14th of March. So the judges are Australian, American, French, Japanese, and uh, the fifth judge is from Norway. So again, we're talking about. Uh, bringing Australian contemporary dance to the world, being judged by leaders in the field from around around the world who are not just looking at the skill of the work being presented but the ideas it's expressing and exploring and how that work stands in relation to other work internationally, not just locally, which is, again, a really exciting aspect. Mm, it keeps it quite fresh in my mind because I think I could be performing it in Berlin and, you know, they don't know who Joe Lloyd is and that's fantastic. <laughs> So, Joe, if you uh, if you do win the award, the the fifty thousand dollar prize, for example, that enables you to then make a new work. Yeah, or buy a Porsche. <laughs> I, I mean, think you might need more than fifty thousand. Well, for a Porsche. The, as as far as I know, there's no limit to what you do with your winnings. Great. 
there was a rumour that the first winner bought a jet ski, which I thought was hilarious, and it could be true, I don't know, but um, we'll see. Yeah. Um, certainly past winners have gone on to make full-length work, uh, full-length works uh, out of, uh, like, kind of taking that 15, 20-minute Kia presentation and growing and expanding it. We've seen some really exciting work to come out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, with this one, there's talk of something more formal in terms of an initi- initiative where um, one of us will be able to do that. So, but yeah, the, there's this idea, I guess, that it's a draft um so it's a seed for something else, which I feel like with mine is. Now, I get, how are, you, are you nervous at this stage? Is it too soon to be nervous? Will you get nervous next week when the the actual performance dates uh, are closer? So I don't know, on, will the, the nerves kick in on Sunday the 1st, given that you'll be performing on the 3rd to the 7th? Yeah, I think the time um, is condensing you know, like the way that I work. So I think that puts me in a bit of an edgy space because I think I've got to fix it, but I've only got this much time. So, um, but I think what's interesting is I had a moment where I realised I've got to go back to some of my sort of choreographic principles that I take around with me, which is like make your own Disneyland. So for me, if I'm really excited to perform the work and I think, well, I'd like to see this work, then I think that I'm on track in terms of what I do. So I think I've got to keep remembering myself when I go in there today um, to make the work I want to perform, make the work I want to see, make the work I don't know how to make. They're my kind of things that I always anchor, anchor my process in. I like the phrase, make your own Disneyland. Oh, my God, yeah. And it's like an obstacle course. You know, you just keep finding the, the good bits and the the rides that send you into some wild head spin, you know, and then the ones that are just beautiful. And look at the scenery. Oh, and there's the roller coaster. Oh, my God, I'm going to die. All of this is going to be condensed down into a 20-minute work with you, a designer, <laughs> uh, and a composer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, looking forward to seeing what actually emerges from all of this. Me too. The Kia Choreographic Awards semi-finals are being held at Dance House, uh, 150 Princess Street, Carlton North from the 3rd to the 7th of March. Jump online, www.dancehouse.com.au for details. Book your tickets because I'm sure it will sell out. Um, And as Joe said, if you want to see part one and part two on the same day, that's uh, uh, on the Saturday. Otherwise, you can see um, uh, program one on one night and come back for program two the next night if you don't want to do the immersive, intensive way of doing it. But, uh, Joe, it's been a pleasure chatting and chookers for uh, the Kia Choreographic Awards semifinals. Thanks so much, Richard. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Cities can sometimes feel challenging. So how do you make a, a city more welcoming? How do you make a city more playful or, or or even playable? That's one of the questions that we're going to explore with my next guest. Uh, Dr. Troy Innocent is the RMIT Vice-Chancellor's Senior Research Fellow and joins us to talk about a, kind of an app being developed called 64 Ways of Being, which is transforming Melbourne into a playable city through uh, a connection of live and public art, but also through words. So, Troy, you're looking for unusual words which can't be really translated as part of this process. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, Richard. So it's 
not so much that they can't be translated, it's just a lot of work to translate them so that um, because they're so culturally specific or so connected to a particular worldview that's you know, situated um, in language, that there's a single word for these, these um, kind of things. And we're looking to find a ho- homes for these words, you know, places for them to live within Melbourne. What kind of words are we talking about here? Give us some, a couple of examples. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, one of the words that we've, we've tried is this word, chi kung, kung, sorry. Uh, um, there's a slightly different inflection on the two chis sounds, and I'm still learning um, uh, that, that inflection. But what this word means is, um, uh, it's a word from, from Mandarin, um, and it means uh, the energy between people and beings in a public space. And so this is an example of um, you know, a concept. So it's a concept that comes from you know, the, the idea of chi, but also the idea of shared chi and shared energy in, in a public space. And so we've developed an augmented reality uh, 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 game um, uh, encounter that that talks to that. Another really interesting example, and I really like this one, and we haven't found a home for this yet, um, is um, the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung word for, uh, which is big. And this means, um, well, actually, it, the, the, I'll, I'll relay a conversation I had with Auntie Gail at the Wurundjeri Tribe Council about this because I asked her, what, what is the word for on country? Or, and she goes, big. And I said, well, that's the word for land. And she said, well, what's the difference? You know, land, you, you, there's no concept of not being on country. There's no idea of, you know, country being over there and, and where over here you're always on country and so it's a really culturally specific um, uh, kind of uh, whole concept embedded in that single word it just has a multiplicity of meaning in, in, in those languages it does fascinate me when we sometimes think of languages being ubiquitous and there and word we particularly the English language has a great history of borrowing and, and adopting words and kind of to the point where people no longer really think of them as foreign they might be uh, particular phrases they might be uh, concerned with food uh, mm. and what have you but there are definitely as you've illustrated um, words uh, from languages which it we we struggle to grasp them and 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 own them in a way and so certainly the my very first visit to Copenhagen was when I discovered the 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 word and uh hugve yeah um yes which is uh roughly translates as coziness yes but coziness doesn't do it justice as a word it it simplifies it in a way that the word doesn't deserve that's right um that's a really really good example and that's become you know super popular because um you know, uh, we have all of this, associate, all these kind of uh, imaginings of, of what it's like to live in in places like Denmark, um, and um, you know, uh, and and then we find that there's this word that, that talks about a way of life, a way of being, and that's what our project is really about. So finding these words that not only kind of are hard to translate because that's interesting from a, I guess, a language or linguistic point of view, but also the fact that you know. The world is not the same everywhere, in, and in fact, in, even in Melbourne, it's, it's such a hugely culturally and linguistically um, diverse um, place that you know we we all have this experience of of, of um, uh, the multiplicity of of, of of the city, the multiple kind of ways of being in the city, and which is really um, uh, particularly kind of I guess 
from a you know um, Western um, kind of uh, point of view, or even just a kind of situated in the modernist tradition, you know, going into the, all these ideas about smart cities being, you know, kind of a uniform um, way way of you know, must conform as a citizen into this set of rules, this set of possibilities, this kind of concept that you can play with that, and that there there is actually a way to kind of explore the multiplicity of the city rather than the singularity of the city is really interesting. I, it is something that fascinates me that everybody sees the city and remembers the city differently. My, If I walk through the streets of Melbourne, uh, it's shaped by my knowledge that, oh, that's where I played uh, a game um, designed by uh, some uh, a group of live artists who wanted mm. me to experience the city in a particular way. That's where I kissed my last boyfriend or for the, for the final time or whatever. Everybody feels a city differently. Uh, and that's one of the things that kind of this app once it's finalised and created, will allow people to do as well, to, yes. to layer different ideas and different realities over their own reality. Yes, yes. So uh, all of the – so when you experience the app, um, you're first of all immersed in an, an audio um, kind of landscape. So you always got headphones on. So you're kind of brought into this um, uh, um, alternate space already, which is um, talking about memories and, and um, uh, places and drawing your attention to small details on the street. And so you're bringing and, – and what, what you're talking about is also how you bring yourself – to the experience. So when we're talking about making a game, people often think of, oh, you know, um, there's a character on the screen and I'm co- controlling that character and I'm moving through it. But in this case, you're the character. You're the, you're, you as the player um, are situating your own self, your own memories, your own associations, your own kind of um, uh, cultural background uh, into the city and, and bringing that um, in, into, uh, a, 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 into a kind of set of relations with... Um, the journey that we're taking people through uh, in terms of you know, highlighting your know, language and place, um, different urban environments, and of course these encounters through the augmented reality layers that show another side altogether. Yeah. If you've just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Troy Innocent, and we're talking about the what will become uh, an app called 64 Ways of Being. Uh, but... Back in at the start of February, I believe, uh, Troy, you put out a call for, mm. for, for people to submit words. Uh, and given that there are 251 languages spoken in Melbourne, yes. <laughs> I'm hoping that you've already in the last couple of weeks discovered some fascinating new words that weren't previously on your radar, that, words that have such a specific meaning to them. Yeah, uh, well, we we haven't uh, c- kind of trolled through the the the, the, the um, uh, submissions yet, but we're we're kind of we've got a couple of hundred. We're certainly looking for more, so we're um, asking people to um, submit words from um, a range of languages uh, any, uh, uh, to to become part of the work. And so, what we're in the middle of the developing uh, kind of developing our strategies for urban play. So, how we kind of find homes for these words. Um, and uh, over the next cu- couple of months until we launch the app later this year, we'll be walking around the city, um, prototyping, building things, kind of playing on the streets, finding ways to, to bring people into ways of being through urban play um, that connect to this set of words. So 
Yes, please send us your words. Uh, to submit a word, go to the website 64 Ways of Being. That's the numerals 64 waysofbeing.com. Uh, if you have a unique word that can't really be done justice by translating it into English, uh, then uh, Troy and his colleagues, including the Live Art Collective One Step at a Time Like This uh, and the group Millipede, uh, they want to hear from you. So 64waysofbeing.com, submit those unique words uh, and then you will get to find help them find a home in Melbourne and you can play the app and uh, hear and see your words in well at home here in Melbourne. Troy, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Richard. Uh, it sounds like a fascinating project, and I'm really looking forward to, to it being finished. And I'm also looking forward, just because I'm a, a word nerd, to discovering some yes. fascinating new words <laughs> as well. All the best. Thank you. Triple R. Now, you may be aware that Melbourne is in the midst of the second Asia-Pacific Triennial of Performing Arts, or Asia Topa for short. As part of Asiatopa, there's a wide range of performances happening. You may have seen or heard about Black Ties, which was a collaboration between uh, First Nations theatre companies here in Melbourne and from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, tonight, I'm going off to see a Vietnamese circus company. There's a great range of work being presented. One of the works that uh, I'm particularly intrigued by is called Svakranti, The Revolution Within, and is being presented um, uh, tomorrow, Friday, and Saturday at the Footscray Community Arts Centre in the performance space at Footscray Community Arts Centre. It's performed by uh, Malika Sadabe, who joins me in the studio now, who is a film and theatre actor, a writer, a teacher, a dancer, has founded a publishing house and has been a political activist and continues to be. Uh, she will be in conversation at one point uh, with the, a curator of the event who also joins us here, uh, Nithya Naga. Nagarajan. I'm, apologies for my pronunciation. I'm slightly nervous, Malika. Uh, you are, as I mentioned to you off air, you are a polymath. You cover a wide variety of art forms. You're the second polymath I've interviewed this week after Neil Gaiman. Um, and I'm fascinated about this work because it's uh, talking about the, the legacy of Gandhi and his impact on the lives of women in India today through film, dance, multimedia and more. It feels like a very potent and very relevant piece of work. Um, I come from a family that was involved with Mahatma Gandhi through the freedom struggle. And most of my aunts and my grandmother were all in and out of jail for years uh, during that period. So uh, Gandhiji has been a very live force in my own life. Uh, in 2002, in my home state of Gujarat, which is his home state as well, there was a genocide against the Muslims. And uh, it was a government and a police force that I felt was complicit in the genocide. And I took the government and the police to, uh, to the Supreme Court of India for actively uh, helping uh, the genocide. And I went into several years of being hunted down. I had to go underground. Uh, lots and lots of cases were filed against me. And for the next three years, I was in and out of courts and the police station. I had my passport taken away. And it was only three years later that the Supreme Court of India acquitted me, saying there's no case against her whatsoever. This is all a fraud. And during that time, and during the time when I was sort of in hiding, I used to ask myself whether... I really 
should be putting my family and my community through this, my institution through this. And that's where the show was born. It's a, it's framed as a conversation with Gandhiji uh, saying, you know, I was very afraid where you are not. And did you ever think that uh, it's really not worth it? And uh, then talking about the many cases of non-violent struggle across the world, many led by women. It's funny that I am doing it tomorrow and day after here because India is facing another genocide just now. There is a genocide exactly the same as 2002 unfolding in Delhi. And I'm wondering whether my conversation in the show has to change because because it's it's like the British one doesn't know whether which way the genocide is going to go, whether whether the Satyagrahis, again, hundreds of thousands of women who have never come out of their houses are out on the streets for months on end protesting. And it's what is encouraging is that it is not politically led. It's not led by a leader. It is students and women across the country coming out. So in that sense, it's a victory. But what they face and the police brutality that is being faced, especially by people in Delhi, students in Delhi, is horrendous. So I'm wondering where to frame my performance. Nithya, to bring you into the conversation, um, uh, I know you've played a, a role in bringing uh, Malika to to Melbourne uh, for Asia Topa. Provide us some context for listeners who aren't familiar with her history and her body of work. Why is she such a significant artist and why did you... I guess, fight tooth and nail for a couple of years to make sure that, or to try to get her here. I actually wrote my PhD on Malika Sarabhai's work. Uh, She has a body of work over the past four decades that cannot be distilled down into a sentence. But I know that when I submitted the first draft of my thesis, my supervisor said, this is a great love letter. Now, please go write a PhD. (laughs) Um, But I think having her here, particularly at this time, is an incredibly important one. One of the touch points um, that was important to me was the diaspora audiences here. Um, And I came from the perspective of looking at the dance diaspora audience, but now as we are in the midst of a genocide, I'm reminded uh, of the words of Andrew Taslitz, who is a legal academic, who says, law is naturally conservative. It relies on precedent and background assumptions. Patriarchal rape tales will not give up the ghost easily. I think if we take that statement to be true and agree that law is reactionary, then culture sets precedent. And people like Malika Sarabhai and before her, Mrinalini Sarabhai, and the institution and family of the Sarabhais have continuously set precedent, and it's important at this moment in time. Yeah. Now, one of the things that fascinates me, Malika, about your work and your life, thinking about the uh, the family influences on you. Your father was a scientist uh, and um, uh, had a, uh, a dream of using kind of space and the research involved with space to, to help the, some of the most marginalised people in India. Uh, your mother um, was a champion of uh, traditional Indian culture that uh, in some ways had been kind of uh, repressed by the British during the colonial period. So kind of these two people kind of behind you whose legacy it feels like have flowed into you and merged in you, fighting for the marginalised and representing your culture. How important are those two aspects of your practice? They're both very, very important, but not only my parents, but both families, my mother's family and my father's family, have been champions of the voiceless for four generations. 
And I grew up stupidly, naively thinking that's what everybody does. Uh, and even when I became a performing artist, when I took it on as a career, I had seen my mother using the classical arts to talk about young women committing suicide because of dowry pressures and the so-called untouchables being beaten to death as they are even today, every day in India. And I thought artists mirrored what was wrong with society in a beautiful way, in a way that kept bums on seats, but in a way that le left audiences searching for a different perspective or thinking differently about issues. And think of my very rude shock when I realized that I was, alas, one of very, very few who thought this way, who thinks this way. And uh, I really think... I really think of myself as a communicator. So, so when you say I'm a polymath, yes and no, because whether it's through the books I publish or the articles I write or this interview, what I'm really trying to do is to bring a different perspective on what one is so prejudiced about and what one thinks one knows. Now, one of the aspects of the performance that you're giving at uh, Footscray Community Arts Centre uh, draws on uh, a traditional dance practice from South India in the, that began, I believe, in the 6th century uh, and which is traditionally depicted kind of Hindu mythology and epics. And you're drawing on that tradition but adding in elements uh, around climate change uh, and in particular gender-based violence. Has there been pushback from traditionalists to the art form kind of critical of the way you're kind of adding uh, contemporary elements to its story? It was actually my mother who, as early as 1949, started using tradition to talk about different issues. And she talked uh, with this language, which usually talks of love and beauty, uh, the style called Bharatanatyam. Um, she spoke about dowry debts as early as 1963, and it was a minister who watched her performance, who then brought about the first inquiry into what today we call dowry debts, and the term didn't exist. So in some senses... As I said, I always thought that was what people do. I continue presenting very, very classical work, albeit uh, tilted towards feminism, but taken from the classical repertoire. So nobody can question me about my uh, roots in that sense. And I think that Bharatanatyam is such a powerful language that I have every right to use the grammar as I want and to misspell if I want, because I do know what the grammar is. So yes, there have been pushbacks much earlier, but not for the last uh, couple of decades, because I think they've given up on me. <laughs> Well, and the the fact too that um, one of the things about uh, Svakranti, the revolution within that you'll be performing here in Melbourne, as you said, it's it's a dialogue with uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who is to this day still a greatly revered figure uh, in India and elsewhere because of his politics of non-violence, but also a problematic figure uh, in terms of some of his attitudes towards women, for example, um, uh, during his time in South Africa as a dissident uh, when he discovered one of his male followers had been harassing two of his female followers. He ordered the women to cut off their hair so they wouldn't be a distraction for the young man, for example. So some of those aspects, in the way that Gandhi is now viewed. Talk to us about kind of these kind of explorations and conversations within the work. Uh these are not the explanations I do. Uh, his um, his experiments with sexuality is not something that is of interest to me or uh, I think uh, in a world which is 
trying to become gender bias less, uh, those experiments become rather insignificant. What is of significance if we want to save the world as we hope we knew it, certainly people your age and mine, uh, if we want to have a planet to live upon, we need to be looking at Gandhian aspects of tolerance and compassion towards human beings, of not othering everybody else except oneself, and of not even tolerance, of acceptance of difference. Uh, to, to, even to use the word tolerate is patronizing. I don't tolerate another religion. I have to accept it, whether I like it or not, or I accept it or not, just as they have to accept me. And I think that in a world where there is so much hatred and so much violence and we have presidents signing deals of millions of dollars of defense deals in the midst of uh, a civil genocide, I think is, a, is, is what we should be looking at Gandhiji for. Because after all, nowhere in the world has hatred won. It has not led to any happiness. It has not led to any prosperity. So we are at a point of time that unless we understand Gandhiji's message and Buddha's message and Martin Luther King's message and Mandela's message uh, and the message of so many people, I have taken Gandhiji because he's very real for me. Unless we do that, we can only self-destruct. And we are seeing it every day, whether it's in your uh, bushfires or whether it is in the storms that are battering the world. We are seeing it. We are seeing a complete self-centeredness that is leading to our fall and destruction. When you say the storms that are battering the world, you're not just talking about the storms created by climate change, but the storms of politics, the storms of hatred. Absolutely. Uh, uh, in India at the moment, talk to us a little bit more about the situation there, uh, the, the situation occurring for uh, kind of Melbourne audiences who may have seen flashes on the news, who may know that there's a, an, a rising anti-Muslim sentiment, for example, but aren't across the details. The greatest thing about our constitution is that it is a constitution that makes no difference and no reference to religion. It is a constitution which is valid for every Indian, whatever their belief. And that is what has made us a great nation, a democracy. This government has tried to break that and a few months ago brought in something called the Citizens Amendment Act and said that they were giving... Uh, leeway to come f uh, for three countries around us for Hindus, Sikhs, Parsis, Christians and Jains, purposefully leaving out Muslims. Now, these are supposed to be people who are facing um, negative uh, barriers in their own countries because of their religious beliefs. Never has there been such an anti-constitutional act brought in, and they just brought it in. And over the last three months, across the country, there have been uh, voices, hundreds of thousands of voices against it, not only from the Muslims, from young people. Students have taken to the, to the streets in peaceful demonstrations. The police have gone in, beaten them up, killed a few people. We are living in a country where we are afraid to speak our own minds because we are thrown into uh, jail by uh, this ridiculous British law, which was outlawed in Britain about 100 years ago, called sedition. And we are, we are living in a country where we are no longer following the constitution and thereby uh, we are afraid to speak, we are afraid to who is listening to us, all our phones are being broken into, internet is being 
either looked into or as in the case of Kashmir, completely shut down. It is very difficult times. And India is not the only one. I am just talking about India because we have had freedom. And people try and compare it with Mrs. Gandhi's emergency. But the emergency was an emergency. She declared it as a period of emergency. This is an insidious, creeping, taking away of our basic constitutional rights. Nithya, you're doing the In Conversation at Footscray Community Arts Centre uh, both Friday night and Saturday night, I believe. Uh, with so much to talk about, you face a great challenge as, a, as uh, an interview host and conversationalist. Uh, I also wonder, given some of the political ramifications, is there the risk of fallout for you personally, for, uh, for people you care about, uh, if the government takes offence, if the Indian government takes offence to you raising these political issues in a, in a Q&A? Um, I think I enjoy the privilege of living here. Uh, I don't live in that context. I don't have to go back to that context. Uh, there I have economic privilege, and it puts in me a, a duty to speak. Uh, media is very biased in India. It's being controlled by the government. So what you receive um, through media is not. It's very polarizing. Uh, through your social media infiltration and click farms also, it's very polarizing. So I think there is a duty for me to speak. Um, and in Malika's work, particularly this one, there is conversation even through the show. So it will just be an extension of that conversation. There is nothing abstract about the work. And I would really like to draw attention to that because here there is so much talk about contemporary work being abstract. But contemporary work is something that also speaks to the urgency of times. And abstraction is too high a price to pay when you might lose the ability to communicate to even one person of the audience when the media is not telling them what they need to know. Um, so in terms of ramifications, possibly, but I'm less concerned. The performances of Svakranti, The Revolution Within, are at Footscray Community Arts Centre tomorrow night, Friday the 28th, and Saturday the 29th of February at 7pm, followed by a 30-minute in-conversation. Uh, if you would like more information, uh, you can go to footscrayarts.com uh, and you can... Uh, uh, find a link there to the Try Booking website for the performance as well. Tickets are $30, uh, $20 concession. Uh, and as I said, the performance happening at Footscray Community Arts Centre, 7pm tomorrow night and Saturday night. Malika and Nithya, thank you both so much for joining us here thank at Triple R. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 